Well, welcome to the final part of a, um, a five-part series we're calling Bigger. Uh, and and uh, Bigger is really a series built on the idea that all of us, given our best times, will have a vision and a view of a life that is bigger and better than our present, and we, we hope certainly than our past. That we may look forward to, whether it's in our faith or our family or our business or our relationships or our goals and dreams, something bigger and better for the future. And what I have said from the beginning is that all of our views of bigger are actually built on some assumptions about how God works. That there's views of bigger about how God works, how we work ourselves. We all have assumptions about God, ourselves, others, how we should use our influence and how we should see future success that each of our views of bigger is actually built on a whole layer of assumptions. And in this series, we've been tracking with this statement and going week by week, talking about assumptions we have about God, ourselves, others, influence, and today, future success. I've offered you four prayers so far in this series to consider that help you get underneath what are our assumptions about God and ourselves and others and influence and today future success. We talked about the Lord's Prayer and seeing God as our Father and like a heavenly dad. We talked about in uh, ourselves, we, we looked at excuse me, this prayer of David in Psalm 51 about being broken before God. And we look then at, at others of this prayer from Paul in uh, Philippians chapter 1 about loving well and making great decisions and how that leads to that. And last week we looked at in the um, how we see our influence, a small little prayer in the book of First Chronicles, the prayer of Jabez, and talked about expanding influence, which leads to Expanding influence leads to future success conversation, which is what we're talking about today. Now today, I happen to notice as I look out uh, here and see almost a sea of green uh, around me. There's quite a few uh, people who have an interest in some, I think there's a game going on later today that may be of interest to some of us here at GPC. My sincerest apologies for my lack of discernment about that when I put my shirt on today. Okay, so for those of you who are interested or in the other team, maybe you're interested in the color that I'm wearing up here, but uh, I had zero thought of my attire uh, relative to the team choices for the game later today. I will say this, I have green eyes. <laughs> and that's about all I can do for you here today, okay? Uh, so tonight's game is going to be pretty clear what success is around the game this evening. For one team, they're going to win, and one, they're going to lose. And the definition of success is pretty clear in an environment like that, where it's very cut and dry. You win, you succeed, you lose, you fail, essentially. Uh, the reality is success is much more difficult to parse and nuance in all of our lives beyond that. What does it actually mean to be successful? And in what sphere of influence are we even talking when I use the word success? And so this morning, I'm not going to try to solve that tension. In fact, all I'm going to do is put it to you and say you define it for yourself and however you might like to. Whatever you think for you success might be, that's what I'm going to talk about this morning. Whether that's success in your desire to be a greater mom or a greater dad than your parents were to you. Whether you have a desire to change a personal habit that has been hanging on for a little while and you haven't been able to change that. Whether you have a, a goal to graduate at a certain GPA level and move on to college of this kind and that's your goal, then that's what you might think of when you think about success. Maybe you have a, a reconciliation need in your family and your family's not getting along and you think God might use you to be the one to bring your family together. That may be success for you. So whatever comes to your mind when you think about success for you, 
what a future success might look like. I want you to have that in your mind as you consider this morning's message. So this morning, we have the opportunity to look at um, a woman in the Old Testament who's an incredibly strong woman, whose example and model is uh, transformative for us if we will allow it to be, who dealt with great opposition, great difficulty, and great challenge, and experienced success beyond her ability to bring it about. And so this morning, we're going to look at uh, the story of this woman named Hannah in the Old Testament. So if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm fighting a cold, so I'm going to cough a few times, and I'm probably not going to hug and kiss you this morning. I hope you understand. You might say that's a good thing anyway. I wouldn't really prefer that in the first place. But if I clear my throat a few times, just know where that is coming from. But Hannah's story is found in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 1. I want to invite you to turn to 1 Samuel Chapter 1, uh, it's in the Old, we call it the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, by the way, there's a Bible in the pew around you. That is our gift to you. We'd love you to, to take that with you if you don't own a Bible. First Samuel, is as you open up your Bible on the, the left, you'll find Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. It's the ninth book in the Old Testament. So just kind of keep going until you get to number 9, you'll find First Samuel. First Samuel chapter 1 is where we're going to land this morning. And this is a very interesting story, and I'm going to you know, um, make some comments as I read the story to you, but I want you to know this. As you open up your Bible to 1 Samuel, uh, in our English Bible, 1 Samuel comes in a different place than it does in the Hebrew Bible. And so when this, this was put together for the, um, in, in the Hebrew context, 1 Samuel actually came after the book of Judges. Now here's what that means for us, that in the time frame of when we opened 1 Samuel, the book of Judges ends in the Bible and basically says this at the end of the book, that um, at this time there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And so that is the, the context of which 1 Samuel opened. So imagine a land like that. There's no king, there's lack of leadership, lack of clarity, and everyone did whatever they felt like was right in their own eyes. The book of 1 Samuel becomes the story of God drawing the nation of Israel back to spiritual commitment to him through the appointment of kings and prophets and that kind of thing. And so in 1 Samuel, there are two people who stand head and shoulders above everybody else in terms of their spiritual commitment, and they're introduced to us right away in 1 Samuel chapter 1, because this is a time in the nation of Israel of great spiritual lethargy or uh, you know, lack of connection. There's a real drawdown in spiritual commitment. So 1 Samuel opens up, and we get introduced to some characters uh, right away. And so let's look at them uh, beginning at verse 1. There was a certain man from Ramathame, uh, Zuphite, by the way, if you don't know words, just say them with confidence and move on. Okay, I don't know how to say these words. I'm just moving on. Right. From the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. Now, the reason they put all these things in, just so you know, is so that you can fact check that this actually is happening. I don't care if you remember these names, but just know that the Bible, in particular 1 Samuel, is not a fairy tale. This is not Cinderella. This is the, the reason that these names are in here is so that the people who are hearing this can actually go back and find these people because they're giving little clues of evidence. This actually happened. That's why they identify these names. So there's a certain man uh, in Ephraim whose name, his name is Elkanah. He had two wives. That's a problem. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. That is also a problem. So Elkanah is the husband. He has two wives. He lives about 20 miles north of Jerusalem is where he's living. 
so a little bit kind of out in the country. Uh, here's what we think has happened, is that he actually loved Hannah, and we'll see that in a minute. They actually loved Hannah and married her probably because of that. But out of, um, uh, for, this is going to sound kind of crass, but almost in a utilitarian purpose, married a Peninnah. In other words, he needed to have kids, and he couldn't have kids with Hannah. And there was um, no other options for having children. You couldn't go to the clinic, let's say, right, to solve this issue. You needed, if you wanted to have offspring, you had to do something. And so what, what Elkanah did is he brought on Peninnah as another wife so that he could have offspring. And by the way, the Bible does not recommend polygamy. It doesn't need to say that. It doesn't commend us as a good choice. It just comments on it as a fact and moves on and does not encourage that. So just gonna, I'm not going to stay on that issue. That's not my primary point. I just want you to know two wives, and that is going to be a problemo. Look at verse 3. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. Just to orient you, that's a 15-mile journey from where he is at, going from the hill country down to Shiloh, about 15 miles. And down there, Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. These are worthless people. <laughs> the Bible uses that term to describe them. These two sons of um, Eli were, were terrible. Uh, they were absolutely terrible. Uh, and it, it was amazing the things that they did. But, but three times a year... In particular, Elkanah had to travel down to Shiloh, 15 miles, to offer sacrifices in Shiloh. And he, he couldn't just throw the family in the minivan and drive down to Shiloh. We're talking about a, a significant journey on donkeys or what have you down to Shiloh. We're looking at at least a day to two-day journey down to Shiloh about three times a year to fulfill the law's requirements. And so in that... You know, everybody pony up, let's get on down to Shiloh, everybody bring your food along, hey, Peninnah, you get all your kids, Hannah, you get yourself, come on down to Shiloh, like, let's go, and it's going to take a day or two to get down there, and so look what happens next in verse 4. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Peninnah, and to all her sons and daughters. So there they are in Shiloh, and here is the day to sacrifice and, um, you know, Elkanah rolls out the meat, and he's like, okay, yeah, Peninnah, there's one portion for you, and, you know, son number one, number two, daughter three, four, five, son six, seven, eight, whatever. I don't know how many kids Peninnah had. And here's your one piece of meat for you. Actually, you know, because I love you, I'm going to go ahead and give you two. <laughs> Look at what happens. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, verse five, because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb, so he's feeling sorry for her. And verse 6, and because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And then this went on, verse 7, year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? The answer, of course, is no. <laughs> it's different, Elkanah. It's different. Yes, you mean something to me, but it's different. My dreams and my hopes of a future have been crushed. And I feel like God's hand is against me because that's how we understand God's blessing and cursing. And I think God is against me. And you can give me a double portion if you want to. But this other woman you married who lives in another tent all the time and not with me, she is getting under my skin and she's getting into my soul. And she's reminding me all the time that God is not with me. And I'm weeping desperately. 
and imagine this scenario. Just imagine it playing out, the feeling of being Hannah in this moment, year, as the text reads, year after year. Continuing the 15-mile journey, day-and-a-half trip, knowing what's going to happen, knowing Peninnah is going to take the news and just kind <clears> of <throat> twist it into your soul again. Hey, hey, I got eight pieces of meat over here, Anna. I mean, how, how many do you? Oh, you got two because he loves you so much. You got two. That's awesome. I mean, I got six kids over here. Good for you. You know, how's that? Hannah is torn up. Look what she does next. Verse 9. Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. She couldn't take it anymore in this particular time. And, and I believe she probably walked away from the meal, walked away from the, the gathering there, and just kind of found her way over toward the temple. And Eli, the priest, was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. And then Hannah, thinking, I believe, that she was alone. And you can imagine this, just getting this out. She's so overcome by all this. And, and so she, she says, in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you'll look uh, if you only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I'll give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. She's a desperate woman. She's a desperate woman trying to reach for something for God. And so she's there praying. Eli is sitting on his chair and looking at this woman praying. And he's thinking, there's something weird about this. Like, this is not normal. Number one, there's not a lot of people who are very spiritual in this time. That this, again, we're coming off a period of time where there's spiritual apathy in the land. And so the thought that this would be a sincere prayer doesn't even cross his mind. Look what happens in verse 12. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth, and Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. <laughs> You've been there? It just worked you up so much. And Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long will you keep on getting drunk, get rid of your wine? You know why he thought that? Because that's what his sons did. That's all that he saw. That's all that he knew. First thing, man, this is a crazy person. She must be, be drunk. Verse 15, not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who's deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And Eli, standing corrected, sitting on his chair, says, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. And she said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. And she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. And so early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And so in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him, which is essentially what the name Samuel means. Now, look what happens next. Verse 21, when the man Elkanah went up with all of his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. This is coming around next year. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. And then Elkanah offered some words that are great advice for husbands everywhere. Do what seems best to you. Elkanah, her husband, told her, Stay here until you have weaned him, and only may the Lord make good his word. And so the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. And then verse 24, After she was weaned, 
excuse me, after he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And when they had slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, As surely as you live, my Lord, I'm the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. Do you remember me? You thought I was drunk. Remember that? This is now, we believe, a couple years ago after little Samuel now could eat on his own without being nursed by his mother. There could be two years, could be three, not sure exactly, but somewhere in that toddler range where there wouldn't be too much of a burden on Eli now to watch over him in terms of food and feeding him. As surely as you live, my Lord, I'm the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him, so now I give him to the Lord for, for the... His whole life, he'll be given over to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Can you imagine what would be going through Hannah's mind as she makes the trip down to Shiloh? Can you imagine it for a minute? Just get in that moment with Hannah. Now it's two or three years later, and she's taking her son, the one that she had prayed for, the one that she had longed for, the one who is the answer to that bitter soul of hers that God responded and gave her a child. And all the way down for that day, the day and a half journey, what do you think is going through her mind? Like, God, do you really want this? How am I going to say goodbye to you? You you know if you're a parent how much bonding happens between a mom and a kid in the first year, two, three years of life. It's incredible. And then for mom to be able to go down and hold her word and say, now, here's my son, and and I'm giving him to you, and I am going to walk away from the very thing, God, that you've given me that has been an answer to the desperate soul that I've had. And Hannah leaves Samuel there with Eli and walks away. And what do you think she does? What do you think goes through her mind as she heads back home to Rama? What would be on your mind? What would be on your heart? When you leave your two- or three-year-old son whom you have prayed for, who is the answer to your prayer, who was God's deliverance for you, what would you think and what would you feel? And what Hannah thinks and what she feels is recorded as one of the greatest prayers in all of the Bible, beginning in chapter 2. Look what she says. And then in that moment, Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high, meaning my my cause or my need or my, the awareness that God has of me is, is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies for I delight in your deliverance. Look where Hannah begins. There's a worship immediately. My heart rejoices, but Hannah, you just left Samuel. Are you kidding me? How do you do this? And then she says, my mouth boasts over my enemies. Who do you think is in her mind other than Peninnah? This woman who has been turning the screws in her soul for years. I have no doubt that what she means in verse 1 and into verses 2 and 3 is Peninnah, that woman, that other woman who has been irritating and provoking me for years. My mouth boasts over my enemies. I delight in your deliverance, verse 2. There's no one holy like the Lord. There's no one besides you. There's no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly. Who do you think she's talking about there? Or let your mouth speak such arrogance. You may as well just fill in Peninnah here. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. Look at verse 4. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumble 
are armed with strength. She's comparing Peninnah to herself. The bows of, of Peninnah, her, her arrows that she had pulled back and let fling into her heart and soul, those bows are broken. You can no longer shoot your arrows at me. All the messages that you sent to me about the things that will never happen, how God's against me. And let me ask you, do you ever have people like that? Do you have messages like that? Do you have messages that you bring from your family, from your past? People who have told you that that's never going to happen. God's hand is against you. The bows of the enemies, Hannah says, those are broken. They no longer work to shoot those into my heart. It's not there. Those who stumbled, that was me, now are armed with strength. Verse 5, she contrasts each other again. Those who are full hire themselves out for food. But those who are hungry, hunger no more. She who is barren, speaking of herself, has borne seven children. That's not true literally, but it is true figuratively. She's looking at Samuel and being like, this is perfection. That number in the Bible is about perfection and completion. It's almost like I've had seven kids. It's been so incredible. I've been fulfilled in all the ways. But she who has had many sons pines away, referring again to Peninnah. This is this, this strange reality that God has delivered and taken away the weight of her enemy and her adversary on her. And she turns to this incredible worship. She's gotten on the other side where she's been down for years. And then here's what happens next. She explains the why, and that is so critical. Because I ask myself the question, how, how and why is it that Hannah is able to, to drop off her son, Samuel, and then walk away and worship. Isn't that just a little crazy? Like, to drop off a two- or three-year-old that you have prayed for and have longed for and years and years and years and years have, have kind of weeped for, like, to walk away and then your reaction to be, man, God has delivered me, and to, to go and worship. Like, is there something wrong with Hannah? Is she a, a terrible mom who doesn't care about kids? Or is there something deeper going on that I can learn from? Because it has to be one of the two. She's either delusional and crazy and not fit to be a mom who celebrates when she leaves her kid, or there's something deeper that actually is completely transformational. And I like to argue that it's actually the second. That there's something that Hannah does next, and the place she takes us in her prayer that helps me understand how is it and why is it that someone like a mom can get to that point of dropping off Samuel and being like, God is good. He's delivered me. And look what, he's, look what she's how she prays next. Verse 6, The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. And then she says this in verse 8, the end of verse 8, For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. You see what she's done there? In these verses alone, look at the action. Look at who's doing the action. Verses 6, 7, and 8. The Lord brings death and makes life. He brings down to the grave. The Lord sends poverty. He humbles. He raises. He seats. And then just to summarize it all, she's saying, He has set the foundations of the world in place. And if that is true, if it is true that God has set the foundations of the world in place, then everything that happens within this world, every success that we experience, every struggle that we have, is happening within the foundation of God setting the broader foundation of the world in place. Like He is the one who has set the foundations 
of the world. And so everything that I do can make sense in light of God's sovereign control of this universe. Just to make it even clearer, look what she says next in verse 9. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness, and then makes this statement, which is incredibly profound. It is not by strength that one prevails. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. It is not by strength that we prevail or that we succeed. Look at the second part of verse 9. It is not by strength that one prevails because it is God who sets the foundations of the world. Like This to me is the, the kingpin or the linchpin of Hannah's recognition. She knows. like It wasn't because of me that God has delivered me. It wasn't because of me that, that I have this, this kid. Therefore, I can praise God, even as I give away Samuel, because this is all within God's sovereign plan. He gives life. He brings death. He's the one who delivers. It's him. It's not by my strength. And here's why this is important for me and for you, I think, when we think about future success and how we plan for times like Hannah, when God does deliver and gives you what you want in your heart. When God moves you from being like, I don't think I can ever have this happen to me. I don't think I'll ever have a kid like Hannah. I don't think I'll ever have this depth of my soul satisfied to all of a sudden being in a situation where, whoa, like I'm here. God's been good. He's delivered. <laughs> He's delivered. Like I, I, I'm married. I didn't think I, I would be. I'm, I'm satisfied even though I'm not married and I didn't think I would be. I, I have a kid and I didn't think I would ever have a kid and I don't have a kid, but I'm satisfied and fulfilled in God's presence. I mean, the business is growing, my family is reconnected, or even my, you know, my health is failing, but in that context, like, I have this peace with God that is unusual. Like, getting to this place where you look back and say, man, God has set the foundations of the world, and, and Hannah says, when that happens, when that happens, just please remind yourself, that it wasn't by strength that you got there. It wasn't by your own strength that you got there. Here's one other way to look at it, and that is this. The blossoming tree gets attention because of its fruit, but owes its success to its roots. The, the blossoming tree, right, gets attention because it has fruit there. But the success of the tree isn't because of the fruit, but because of the roots. For, for Hannah, for Hannah, her fruit and the blossoming tree, the thing that got attention for Hannah was Samuel. Samuel is the fruit. Samuel is the, the, the sign that God has delivered, and that gets attention. But underneath Samuel, Hannah knows it isn't about Samuel. It isn't about my son. In fact, I can let him go so much because I realize that underneath Samuel, that's just the fruit. Underneath that is the roots of God's sovereignty. He set the foundations of this world in place. That is what I'm going to celebrate. I don't care. I don't care if I do or don't. I don't care if I win or lose. I don't care if we're successful or not. Ultimately, what I care about in this season, if things do go actually incredibly well, and you get into the school you hope to get into, you make the money that you thought you could never make, you overcome the kind of opposition in your own mind that you never thought you could overcome because your dad has been abusive to you or your mom has been, you've carried these, these, this weight forever, and you finally get on the other side of that or your family is reconciled or your marriage or just 
just kind of puttering along or falling apart is actually saved. And you get on the other side of that, and you're in a position where you're like, man, God is good. Please, do me a favor. Don't forget Hannah's prayer. Because when times are incredibly awesome, when you experience success, I don't want you ever to forget that the strength didn't come from you and didn't come from you, but came because God has set the foundations of the world in place and all of the things that happen inside of this life come from the sovereign hand of God. And I want to encourage you. You may get attention. <clears throat> my apologies that my voice sounds like I'm going through puberty. <clears throat> Again. Now I can move on from that. <clears throat> you may get attention because you're really smart. You may get attention because you're beautiful. You may get attention because you have business savvy. You may get hired because you can cast a vision. You may get the kind of attention that comes with bearing fruit. You're going to be good at a lot of things in your life. But I want to tell you, if you trust in your mind, in your beauty, in your savvy, in your strength, in your insights, if you trust in the fruit, you've missed the reality that the strength of the tree isn't in the fruit, but in the roots of God's sovereignty. And that's where Hannah goes. She says, I'm going to worship my God. And if I need to give the fruit away, I'm going to give it away because my life is built on this foundation wherever I go. If you want sustained success, drive your faith and heart and soul deep into God's sovereign rule over this world and over your life. And don't just trust in the fruit of what you might see. Let me be careful. <clears throat> Apologies for the voice. Let me be careful to also say this message. Do not get, do not hear me talk this morning and think that I'm encouraging passivity as if we just wait for God to act. Think if you've been around me long enough, you know that I'm anti-passivity. Okay? What I want and what I think happens here in the book of 1 Samuel is that Hannah lines up, she aligns her strength with God's rather than running her strength in another direction. So hear me well on this. Please use your mind. Use your physical skills. Use your insights. Don't be passive. Use your strength. But align that with God's sovereign interest for the world. And there we have a sweet spot where we say, no matter what will happen, no matter how God delivers success to you or to me, I'm going to trust in his sovereignty. So this is all I really wanted to say this morning is this. When you win, and you will, please don't forget Hannah's prayer. It's as simple as that. When you win, and you will. When you find success, and you will. And it's going to be in differing measure. Please just don't forget Hannah's prayer. At all. And this prayer was so profound, actually, uh, believe it or not, that it actually transcended generations. It went from century to century to century to century to century. It's passed down from generation to generation. From the Jewish faith on down now to the Christian faith, where here we are talking about Hannah's prayer. It became so well-known, um, became such a, an object of natural worship, that uh, there was a young woman, a uh, teenage girl, who received some incredible news when she was very young, a uh, young teenager. And in her response to God delivering news to her, she prayed a prayer that now we call the Magnificat. 
Mary's Magnificat. She prayed a prayer. The Virgin Mary prayed after hearing that she was going to be the one who's going to give birth to the Savior of the world. Prayed a prayer modeled exactly after this one. Where do you think she got it from? From having Hannah's prayer passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation. And Mary gave birth to that baby boy. And in that expressed the exact same sentiment of Hannah throughout her prayer. And that baby boy, Jesus, grew up and became the Savior of the world, who ultimately said this, if you remember Jesus' statements uh, throughout his time here, one of the things he said when he was about ready to go to the cross, he said, as he was praying to his father, he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Like, I don't want to go to the cross. In fact, everyone will consider that a, a failure rather than a success. It's not what a king does. It's not what a Messiah does, but not my will, but yours be done. Why? Because Jesus knew the foundations of the world were set by the Heavenly Father. And I need to put myself underneath that. And so Jesus came, sacrificed himself within the scope and with the plan, the sovereign plan of God, so that you and I can know him as our personal Savior, even this morning. And this, by the way, is what we get to celebrate as a church on a regular basis, is remembering that Jesus came to die for you and for me by celebrating communion together. We have the opportunity to do that this morning to share together as believers in communion, remembering Jesus' blood and his body until he returns. And it's an amazing thing to think that Jesus said, not mine, but yours be done. Not my interest, but yours be done, especially in light of what we talked about this morning. So I want to encourage you. Please don't forget Hannah's prayer. Don't forget that when God does deliver, when he provides for you in ways that are surprising to you, when you find yourself getting into the school, when you find yourself getting the date you never thought you would, when you find yourself getting over top of the criticism that you've always been fighting, when you find yourself in a position in life where even if you are unhealthy, you have less money than you thought, you have less faith than you thought, but you find yourself in a place of peace, and you look back and you're like, man, God, thank you. It's not by my strength that I prevail, but by the sovereign hand of God who laid the foundations of the earth. How do you handle future success? Drive your faith, your heart, deep into the sovereignty of God, that no matter what, he has laid the foundations. And use your strength to align with his sovereign purposes for the world. I hope you've enjoyed our bigger series as we think about God, ourselves, others, influence, and success. I hope it's been a challenge for you. And I hope you have five prayers in your pocket now to use to challenge you, to encourage you, and to refresh you throughout your life for different seasons and different purposes.